Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. If you've happened to jump into this episode first before the first actual episode, well welcome. And if you're returning, welcome back. I'm sure quite a few of us have finally watched Hocus Pocus 2 by now, or maybe gotten into some early Halloween activities. If so, join our Facebook group and let us know that what you have thought about the movie, or what spooky season activities or traditions you may have had with your family members or friends. If you've already joined our Facebook group, feel free to make a post about how we're doing, maybe something you might want to hear us do as a subject. Just search for Macabre Emporium in your Facebook search bar. Today's episode might, well, going to be probably much longer than our very first episode that we did, and it's also going to be a lot darker. We're taking like a hard left turn into dark territory, basically. Um, I would just want to point out that this is personally a true crime podcast so if possible child death or extreme graphic details of crimes are going to be a trigger for you i'm going to highly recommend that maybe our show is not the best show for you with that said i'm not going to say we're going to cover every little detail down to a t um, we're going to use our best discretion on what details are going to be shared so if you're also Somebody that's wanting every little detail of a crime or whatnot, you can easily search for that stuff on Google on your own time. Um, with that said, let's get started. Well, by divine intervention of the universe, Sarah and I actually have selected some true crime cases that somewhat line up into each other because they revolve around the same industry. Um, some of you may have heard mine. Sarah kind of delve into a little bit of details of hers to me like while she was writing her script for it and just little behind the scenes thing with it our episodes uh, we don't share our scripts or what we're doing we do very vague details to each other so all of our reactions that you hear are genuine they're not scripted the story i have chosen for this week's episode is basically considered probably will consider one of the first mass shootings before the term mass shooting was used at this time, the media like to use the word massacre more than anything else because of the old term, if it bleeds, it leads, basically. So what we'll be covering is the San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre of 1984. Have you ever heard of this, Sarah? I have, but it's not anything that I've ever really gotten into. Okay. What can you do in 77 minutes? You can maybe watch a television show, maybe two if it's only 30 minutes long. Maybe three, actually. Maybe make a dinner and enjoy a long chat with an old friend. Perhaps even listen to a podcast. But for 50 people, 77 minutes would seem like a lifetime. July 18th, 1984. The burger giant McDonald's would suddenly, in a blink of an eye, be in the national spotlight from the actions of one piece of shit human named James Oliver Huberty. James Oliver Huberty was born on October 11th, 1942. The youngest of two children his parents, Earl Vincent and Isil Evelyn Huberty, would have. 
His father was a quality inspector and his mother was a homemaker. His parents were devout Methodists and would attend church regularly as a family. When James Huberty was three years old, he contracted polio, and to debilitate his illness, he would have to wear steel and leather leg braces. Even though he did recover from polio, he would be afflicted by a mild limp for the rest of his life. His father would buy a 155-acre farm in Mount Eaton, Ohio. His mother refused to move to Ohio, let alone even go see this property. James Huberty's mother would eventually abandon the family and become a Pentecostal street preacher in the Tucson, Arizona area. Huberty was devastated by the abandonment of his mother. His father, Earl, would often find him crying out next to the chicken coop on this farm. Huberty had very few friends growing up and took quite an interest in target shooting when he was younger. Friends and family would recall Huberty as, I quote, a queer little boy who was constantly shooting his pistol. By the time he reached his teenage years, he would be considered somewhat of an amateur gunsmith. Do you know what a gunsmith is? Uh... Somebody that's really good with guns? Yep, kind of like a blacksmith, but they specialize in making firearms. Yeah. During his high school years, he was a constant target for bullies due to his limp and his religious upbringing. He would graduate from high school as an average student. While attending college in 1965, this is where he would meet his wife, Etna Markland. After James and Etna would marry, James would take on many different jobs. Mostly likely due to his introverted personality, it wasn't best... For him to deal with the public, which would sometimes cause minor conflicts with his superiors. Huberty was very proficient as an embalmer, eventually becoming a welder for a few years until he secured a position with an energy company named Babcox and Wilcox in 1969. He was considered very reliable and willing, willingly took overtime whenever it was offered to him. He and his wife would eventually move to Massillon, Ohio, where they would build a six-unit apartment building where they managed and lived in and they'd have two daughters by 1972. At this point it might sound like a triumph over tragedy kind of story of his life but unfortunately James Huberty had a bad temperament. He would frequently slap and punch his daughters. Sometimes this piece of trash would hold knives to their throats, beat his wife Etna. She would file a report with the Department of Family Services that he had quote-unquote messed up her jaw but would insist that a majority of his assaults were only him striking her only one time. She would repeatedly attempt to persuade him to seek counseling, but he would refuse any type of therapy. She would try her best not to agitate him to pacify his anxiety, his paranoia, and his temper that he would have. She would develop a way to eventually calm him is by reading tarot cards to predict his future, which he always ended up believing his readings from her. His co-workers and neighbors would recount Huberty being very paranoid and obsessed with firearms. They would also say that Huberty had a mental tally of they would say, of every little setback and salt and every source of frustration he would have. He told people he would pay his debts if they were good or bad. He encouraged his daughters to fight girls in the neighborhood they were having conflicts with. James Huberty was also a conspiracy theorist. He believed that the escalation of the Cold War during this time was inevitable, and he believed that the president and the government were conspiring against him, which is very bizarre. I don't know why conspiracy theorists always think that, you know, the government is always single-handedly zeroing in on this one person. It's it's always been that way, and I'm sure it will always be that way. Oh, I understand that. Spoiler alert for them. You're not that interesting. <laughs> He believes society was collapsing quickly through either economic collapse or nuclear war. He committed himself to survival, so he started to stockpile weapons and ammunition along with other provisions for the, you know, incoming nuclear apocalypse, I guess you could call it. His family members would claim that you could actually sit in his house and reach out and touch a gun. 
damn. Yeah, that's what his family saying how many guns this man had. So, like, at any point, anywhere in that house, you could be within touching distance to yeah, a weapon. Yeah, that's what this, uh, his family would say, that you could literally reach anywhere in his house that and reach a gun. overkill. Like, I grew up with a friend that stepdad was kind of like that, but not to that extent. He had a gun in every room of the house, but not to the point you could just reach under anything and there's a gun, like, in a slapstick comedy type situation. <laughs> Right. Or, well, maybe not slapstick comedy, an action movie, you know, situation. Right. Well, you know, when I first read that, though, my first thought was is that he's a little, like, old-timey mystery. You pull a book, and then the wall flips around, and then there's just a rack of guns, you know? <laughs> yes. But for a short time, he removed his family to Tijuana, Mexico, and he believed that their money from selling their apartment building in 1983 after it had burned down would last a lot longer in Mexico since the U.S. dollar at a higher value than the peso. You know what he should have done? Invested in some donkey shows. <laughs> well, actually, looking at the map where Tijuana is, yeah, that's probably <laughs> in the right the part. the debauchery of, capital of the world. Yeah, you know, I guess it is. I never really <laughs> looked into that kind of thing. Me yeah. neither. But I love donkeys. <laughs> now that I've lost my spot... <laughs> After three months, he regretted moving his family to Mexico and relocated to San Ysidro, California in 1984 after he was unable to find work in Tijuana. Now back in the United States in sunny California, he was able to find work again as security guard at a condominium complex, but he was let go for poor job performance and physical instability on July 10th. July 15th, 1984, he commented to his wife Etna that he believes he is starting to have mental health issues. He is finally now reaching out to get therapy, Two days later, he requested the appointment after leaving his contact information with the receptionist that informed him they would call him back within a few hours. Now, this is where spelling is really important. He never actually got a call back because the receptionist misspelled his name Schuberty. S-H-O-U-B-E-R-T-Y. Because of this error, Huberty's temperament changed as he sat quietly by the phone for hours waiting and then finally, he just got up, quietly left their house, and went for a ride on his motorcycle he had at the time, but they don't know where he went. Okay. With his polite demeanor showing no signs of an emergency, he was labeled non-crisis, so it would put him on a callback list for 48 hours later at the least. At the most, sorry. That's part of what happened on why he didn't get a callback. Because he sounded pleasant? Yeah, because he didn't sound like he was a, you know, emergency case that they needed to do something right away. On July 18th, the morning he and his family would visit the San Diego Zoo, while walking through the zoo with his family, he would tell his wife that he feels that his life is quote-unquote effectively over since the clinic never returned his call. After eating lunch at McDonald's, Huberty family would return home. After returning home with his wife, Etna, with her relaxing in their bedroom after their long day at the zoo, he walks into their bedroom wearing a marine t-shirt and camo pants and tells his wife, I want to kiss you goodbye. Etna obliged kissing her husband and asking him, Where are you going? I'm about to start dinner. James simply replies with, I'm going hunting. Hunting for humans. Oh. Now, in a lot of other podcasts and whatnot, people always use their names, but after watching... The crime scene footage in a documentary called 77 Minutes and them talking about um, 
giving these killers notoriety. This is from this point on, I'm only going to refer to James Huberty as Limp Dick because I'm not going to give him the recognition that he, that people want to give serial killers and whatnot. We're just wanting to share these stories with other people in the same documentary. They want to, so we should focus on the victims that absolutely that have passed those that have survived. Um, one of these victims, he actually became inspired by what actually happened by these events to become a police officer for multiple different departments. One of them is one of the other victims. He's now also a math teacher, if I remember correctly. Huh. And he's shared his story of that day with the students. And in the documentary, you can see how emotionally affected his students were by hearing the story. Armed with a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi, and a Winchester 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, several hundred rounds for each of these weapons, and a battery-operated radio. He looks at his daughters as he walks towards the front door and tells them, Goodbye. I won't be back. Hubert has lived a very short distance, approximately 200 yards or so, or 182 meters for our international listeners that we might possibly have, towards the post office before entering the McDonald's parking lot. But for a reference, and some points later on in the story, the post office and the McDonald's are right next to each other. Since I never took Spanish in high school, I'm going to try my best to pronounce these names the best that I can, since there are quite a few Spanish names in it because this did take place near the U.S.-Mexico border. Minutes after Limp Dick enters, he takes aim at John Arnold, a 16-year-old employee, approximately 15 feet away from him. As he takes aim, assistant manager Guillermo Flores shouts, Hey, John! That guy is going to shoot you. Limp Dick pulls the trigger and nothing happens. He inspects his gun in this moment as 22-year-old Nieva Kane, the store's manager, walks towards the counter believing this is a distasteful joke. The manager now walking away from Limp Dick after his inspection of his weapon, Limp Dick fires his shotgun into the ceiling and then takes aim at the manager, shooting her once below the left eye. She dies minutes later. Immediately after that, he fires his shotgun at Arnold, wounding him in the chest and arm. Limp Dick shouts, everyone on the ground, and refers to them as dirty swine and assholes. He also claimed he had killed a thousand in Vietnam and will kill a thousand more, even though he never served in the military. 25-year-old Victor Rivera tries to persuade Limp Dick after his rant and seeing two employees shot not to shoot anyone else, but Limp Dick responds by shooting Victor 14 times and shouting shut up and as he screamed in pain. Holy shit. Staff and customers are now trying to hide the best way that they can behind tables and booths. One survivor recounted hearing Limp Dick say to be quiet and keep the kids quiet since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. His attention was drawn towards six women and children huddled together. He first kills 19-year-old Maria Colomero Salvia with a single shot to the chest and then, final, then fatally 9-year-old Claudia Perez with nine shots of his Uzi. Presses 15-year-old sister Imeldo once in the hand with the same weapon. He then fires upon 11-year-old Aurora Pena with his shotgun. Aurora is first wounded in the leg as they are being shielded by her pregnant aunt, Jackie Reyes. Limp Dick would then shoot her 48 times with a Zuzi at this point, and 8-month Carlo Reyes is wailing next to the body of his mother, and this piece of shit human decides to shoot this child in the back with a single shot. A 62-year-old trucker, Lawrence Vercellis, was now shot and killed next to 
Limp Dick before he targets a family seated next to the player area of the restaurant trying to shield their son and his friend. 31-year-old Blythe Reagan Herrera is shielding her son, Mateo, under one of under one table as her husband, Ronald Herrera, is trying to shield Mateo's friend, Keith Thomas, directly across from them. Ronald is urging Keith not to move, but Thomas was shot four times but not seriously wounded. Ronald was shot six times, one being in the head, but he does survive. Oh, wow. His wife and son weren't so lucky, both being killed by numerous shots to the head. Near them are three women attempting to hide, 24-year-old Guadalupe Del Rio, 25-year-old Gloria Ramirez, and 31-year-old Arceldelis Valles Vargas. Del Rio is hit several times but wounded, and Ramirez is unhurt, but Vargas receives a single shot to the back of the head and dies later in the hospital the next day. Ramirez would be the only one long enough to live to reach a hospital. Wow. 45-year-old banker Hugo Velasco is next to be killed with a single shot to the chest. This is now about the time when phone calls are starting to come into 911 dispatch about what's going on. For years en route to 400 West San Ysidro, the shots were coming from inside the McDonald's, pointed out across towards the post office across the street. The little girl that was shot is being brought into the post office now. But unfortunately, because of this mistake, there's two McDonald's in San Ysidro at this time. Let me guess, they went to the wrong one? Yes, because... For some reason, the calls were coming in of a child being shot and taken to a post office next to McDonald's. But I don't understand how they were accidentally dispatched to the one on the opposite side of San Ysidro. They didn't really go into the details of how that error was made. What they clearly said, we have a child that was shot and was taken mm-hmm. next door to yep. the post office. How do you fuck that up? I'm not sure. I mean, with my experience... In public safety, we can only do so much with the information we're given. So it could have been misinterpretation of the address or the street name is what could have caused this delay. And with my time in that, in this, you know, in the public service, those minutes are a lot longer than you think when you're writing with lights and sirens running. I'm sure. And I'm sure that dispatch and whatever probably wasn't as good back then as it is now. Right. Which probably played a part as well. Right. But also, like I said, you can only do so much with the information that you're given. Right. So as emergency calls are starting to come in about this child being shot and taken to a post office next door, Uh Lydia Flores is driving into the parking lot of of McDonald's. The McDonald's that's currently under siege at this moment. She notices all the broken windows and the sound of gunfire. And then she looks up and sees Limp Dick just shooting away. She then suddenly throws her car in reverse in a flight and flight kind of mode and keeping it in reverse until she crashes into a fence and then hides in the bushes with her two-year-old until the shooting stops. At 4.05 p.m., couple Astolfo and Marcella Felix are driving towards the restaurant, noting the shattered glass. Astolfo assumes that it's a renovation in progress and that Limp Dick is a repairman. He takes shots with his shotgun and Uzi at the couple and their four-year-old daughter. Marcella, Astolfo's wife, survive but is blinded in one eye and leaving her hand unstable for the rest of her life. Her husband would also be wounded. In the midst of this chaos, he ends up handing off their child to a young woman and a police officer who rushed their daughter off to a hospital. As Astolfo assisted his wife as he noticed she was collapsing against a car. All three of them would survive. It would take at least two weeks before Astolfo and Marcella would find their daughter two weeks later in a hospital. 11-year-old friends Joshua Coleman, Omar Alonzo Hernandez, and David Flores Delgado 
are out riding their bikes heading towards this McDonald's on the west side of the parking lot to go buy some sundaes from McDonald's. They hear someone yelling at them from across the street, but they can't really make out what's being said to them, so the boys hesitated for a moment before Limp Dick shoots all three of them. Coleman fell to the ground, shot in the back, arm, and leg. Hernandez was shot multiple times in the back and started vomiting instantly, according to Coleman. Delgado was shot in the head several times. Coleman would only be the three of the best friends to survive this. And watching that documentary about this, um, Coleman's, like, recount of this, he had to play dead his entire time taking shallow breaths to just survive this, watching what's going on. That poor kid. I mean, this documentary is probably the one documentary I have watched I could say has, like, severely changed me after everything in my real world experience with not situations like this but you know severe trauma and things um so getting back into our story here well not story or tragedy i should really say after the three young boys limp dick notices an elderly couple walking towards the entrance now this is you know the emergency calls are coming in and police aren't there because of this error so people are still just filing into this mcdonald's unfortunately and yeah it's 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 a shit show Basically, um, this couple's name is Miguel Victoria Alora and his wife Ada Velasquez. I don't understand the difference between the last names between the two. I don't know if it's a cultural thing with the Hispanic after being remarried. I don't know. Or whatnot, but <laughs> I'm as white as they come. I have no idea. <laughs> well, in multiple sources, this is how their names were reported. Miguel reaches open to Miguel Ruge- oh. Miguel reaches to open the door for his wife, and Limptic fires his shotgun. Killing Ada and wounding Miguel. One of the survivors that went on un- uninjured noticed Miguel cradling his wife in his arms, wiping the blood from her face and shouting at Limp Dick. He then unfortunately approaches from the doorway, swearing back at him and shooting and killing Miguel with a single shot to the head. Damn. This all came from the documentary 77 Minutes. As I stated before, they believe this is like all in the first 10 minutes happened. No, this, these shootings occurred over the entire time. So now I'm going to get into the point where the police have finally arrived. So now that Officer Miguel Rosaro is now first on the scene and quickly establishes the correct address of the disturbance as he went to first originally the post office next door where this child was first originally reported. And that's when he noticed people like in the video, there is a short retaining wall between the McDonald's and the post office. And there's uh-huh. people crouched down behind that and cars and everything else that they can in the area. I got two possible victims on the, uh, the north side of McDonald's. So at this point, Rosaro is the first on scene with officers. Unfortunately, Limpdick has the upper hand on Rosaro at this point as he's the first responding officer. I'm going to cover more in depth a little bit more of why there is such a delay in it. Now, even with Officer Rosaro on scene, Limptic's inside still shooting people and looking for survivors. And by that, shooting those that he believes are faking it and some that, you know, have already deceased, he's still continuing to shoot them. One of the survivors would recount that he would periodically adjust the radio that I had mentioned earlier to maybe look for if there's any news reports about him. They've also said that they saw him dancing after he'd signed the he decided to select that radio station. They didn't say what song. I don't think he'd really give a shit what this piece of shit humans like dancing to. And I, was, I, out of my own morbid curiosity, I tried to find a, an account story of what that song was. Yeah. But I couldn't find anything. 
yeah, while he's dancing, he's, you know, still shooting, shooting out at the police that are now arriving on scene, locking the area down. He now makes his way into the whole kitchen area, which he hasn't even covered yet. He's all, This is all happening outside the restaurant. People from walking up, riding, you know, like the three best friends riding their bicycles. Yeah. Everyone that he has taken shots at is either inside the dining area or outside. He's now making his way into the kitchen area. But you would think with all of the time that they had mm-hmm. with him being up front and shooting at the people outside that they could have escaped well, the thing out is, a back door. Well, that, that's the thing. Some of the people that that's the thing. Some of the people that were hiding in the kitchen area weren't able to because the way to get out is locked because it's also part of the storeroom where all the food is. And they were told to keep the door locked because they were afraid their employees are stealing fucking food. God. Now, I don't know if I'm not going to shit on McDonald's about that decision. They didn't. Nobody specified if that was a corporate or a local decision on keeping that locked. There was no information on that. They, one of the survivors that recounted that door being storeroom locked to the emergency exit, which uh-huh. in this state, that's a fire code violation, having an emergency exit locked like that. Now that he's made his way into the kitchen, he discovers six more employees and shouts, Oh, there is more. You're trying to hide from me. He opens fire and killing 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 19-year-old Elise Barboa Fierro, and 18-year-old Margarita Padilla, but wounds 17-year-old Albert Leos, the one that I mentioned before that became an, a police officer. Okay, yeah. Padilla grabs the hand of 17-year-old Wendy Flanagan and begins to run and fatally shoots Padilla. Wendy Flanagan would survive hiding in the closet with others' employees and a customer. Later on, Albert would crawl to the closet that they're hiding in after being shot five times and he survives. He recalled in the documentary that he had to bite down on a rag after tying his arm in a tourniquet with his shoelaces to keep them from giving you know, giving their position away in this closet. Yeah. After the limp dick makes his way back in the dining area to possibly reload his weapons at this time, he hears 19-year-old Jose Perez groaning in pain and shoots him in the head. Jose Perez was sitting in the booth that was still in the booth that he was sitting in when he gets first shot. At 4.40 p.m., sharpshooters from the San Diego Police Department, if I remember correctly, have now an hour on scene and they're getting set up to take a position on the roof of the post office next door. At 5.05 p.m., officers are given the green light to kill any perpetrator when they have a clear shot. Officer Chris Foster remembers seeing the limp dick son of a bitch sitting on the service counter, you know, where he get your food and everything yeah. reloading his rifle but unfortunately he can only see him for the neck down at this point and at 5 17 p.m a single shot fires out but not from the limp dick but from christopher foster shooting him in the chest and after 77 minutes james limp dick huberty is dead finally after killing 21 people and injuring 19 others Jesus. That many people in 77 minutes with three weapons. That's crazy. Yeah. Some of the issues of the police response was, is that, like I had mentioned earlier, that they were directed to the wrong McDonald's in San Ysidro. Yeah. And also that his use of multiple weapons made them believe that there was more than one person in the building at this time. Understandable. And also them not having a clear view from him shooting out spider webbed all that glass 
so they weren't able to get a clear view on him to see where he's at or how uh-huh. many people are in there, if he has hostages or anything like that. In the aftermath of all this shooting, McDonald's would suspend all their advertisement. Why? They thought it was probably be in bad taste that after this happening, they would suspend their advertising for the restaurants, even though it was in a single location that it was probably in their best interest to do that. And also their main competitor, Burger King, did the same thing in Solidarity. Okay. They quit showing their ads too? Yep, they did for the same amount of time as McDonald's did after this happened. Now, here's where McDonald's is like kind of a fuck you moment. Uh, McDonald's did plan to try and reopen this restaurant two days after this happened. But community leaders and McDonald's executives, you know, finally decided that it's in the best interest not to reopen this McDonald's and they demolished it in September of that same year. They tried to reopen it two days later. Mm-hmm. But there were protests about it and Joan Crock. Do you know who that is? No. Ray Kroc's wife? No. CEO of McDonald's? Oh, that guy. Yeah, I know yeah, that fucker. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> she would, um, you know, create a McDonald's Survivors Fund, which was $1 million, which would be about $2.7 million in today's money. Okay. And uh, since the restaurant did get demolished, uh, what is now sitting on the property, a memorial to these 21 people, and they are in hexagon shapes of made out of white marble, and they vary in height representing the age of these victims. And also, a satellite campus for Southwestern College is now on these on this property. And the memorial is designed by an alumnus of the same college. Um, Limp Dick's wife would try and sue McDonald's and... Oh, hold on. Let me finish. Why? She tried to sue McDonald's and the Babcock uh, Bab and Wilcox company that he worked for, saying that the chemicals from working there and, this, uh, there and the MSG in the food at McDonald's at times, since MSG was a really popular food additive in the 80s to enhance flavor, that, that these two things would cause him to have the uncontrollable rage and delusions that he had. Her case was dismissed in 1987. So, yeah, that 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 just baffles me. Like she didn't go after the psychiatrist that didn't call him back within no. a few hours. No. Nope. That knew he had mental health issues and was well, like, like, "Fuck I that, said, he can wait." Well, yeah, but you know, like I said, he was labeled non-crisis because he was very polite on the phone and everything. So because of that, he was like, "I, I know, I understand." I mean, 1984. We're in 2022. Mental health is talked about more than it was then now. I mean, 1984, we were talking about, oh, you need to man up some more. And like, because that's how our generation is brought up. And, you know, thankfully our age group is we're now trying to. Sorry, help me. <laughs> Shop cats are having a little fight, apparently. God, they're stupid. Did you guys go find some mice hiding behind shelves or something already? <laughs> Sorry. Anyhow, what was I saying? I was talking about mental health, wasn't I? Yeah. It's like, thankfully for like our age group that, you know, we're focusing more on it and trying to get away from the ways we were taught to be brought up. You yeah. Know? That's pretty much it for San Ysidro. That's fucked. Like, I don't even, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, I know. It's, it was a bit of a shock to me reading all of it. Um, For those that are listening, maybe that if you're curious to see 77 Minutes I will warn you, it is extremely graphic. They literally show the San Diego Police Department crime scene footage, so you will see things you probably will not ever unsee again. Um, And I guess you could say the interesting thing is about this is the entire length of that documentary is 77 minutes long. 
They probably did that on purpose, though. Yeah, they did. They literally stated it in the in there that the time the time that it takes you to watch this documentary it will be seventy seven minutes. I mean, I don't think they had to take it that far. I mean, I I get it. Like all of this is happening within seventy seven yeah. minutes, and this is like you watching this is mm-hmm. the same amount of time that it would take for this fucker to kill. And right. hurt all those people. I think they did that to put it in perspective of how long 77 minutes yeah. is. And like from me watching it, it seemed way longer than 77 minutes. And it was probably still nothing compared to oh, how long that absolutely. 77 was minutes not, felt to the people no. in that McDonald's. Now, like I stated in the beginning, that this, that was probably like a lifetime for them. That's crazy. Um, why, why didn't he just... If he was having mental health issues and he wasn't okay in the head, why didn't he... I don't condone suicide. Right. I don't. Don't either. But why didn't he just take himself out? I don't know. Instead of hurting the 21 people that he killed, right? 21? Right. And hurting all of the others that he hurt, including their family members and that entire town. Just take yourself out. Save everybody else the fucking heartache. Right. That's aggravating. I'm pissed. like, Like, I don't know, like, if it was, like, how they look at it now is that oh i want to make a name for myself i want people to remember me this is why i only referred to him as limp dick after you know we got reached july 18th so anyway that's the massacre of mcdonald's in san ysidro of 1984 crazy that was a good one though yeah, I don't know. If not not good. Know but mean. oh, let's say a instead of using the word good, let's say that was interesting. Might be more respectable, I guess you could say. Or are you saying I'm not respectable? No, I'm not saying that. I know. I meant good as in like I've heard of this case, but I've never heard the case. Right. And I think you did it justice. Right. I like never heard of this guy until you know we were playing Killers the Card Game, which. Yeah, maybe we'll have to see if Jeff would want to come on and maybe talk about something with us sometime. That'd be great. Jeff, if you're listening, let me know. Please. <laughs> oh, but yeah, as I was saying, yeah, the killer is the curry game. Yeah, this is the first time I ever saw this since he you know, had a little snippet behind about this piece of shit on the back of the card. So that's kind of why he was. He's in that game? Yeah, he's in the corset of the game. I don't remember seeing him. He's in there. You'll have to show One me later. One of the most, the more famous pictures of this piece of shit is what that was used on the card. You'll have to show me later. I don't remember. Okay. So what kind of story do you have for us today, Sarah? This one is also kind of dark. It I couldn't find as many details about it as you found with yours. Okay. Um, it's definitely not as long either, but I think the information in it is enough. It, it, it'll paint a picture. Okay. So this will be about the KFC murders in texas okay and this is just me being stupid but you know i love the golden girls yeah so i'm going to start this in true sophia fashion okay imagine it kilgore texas 1983 some people went to work and others sat down for a meal not knowing that the day would end with armed robbery and mass murder On September 23, 1983, a KFC crew would start preparing for the end of their shift. Those that were there were either part of the crew or a loved one waiting to pick up an employee. A girl was on her way inside to check on her mother, Mary Tyler, around 11.30 p.m. Her suspicions rose as she got to the doors, only to find them unlocked while the restaurant was supposed to be closed. 
The girl called her stepfather, Bill, who immediately called the police and then headed over to the KFC. Upon entering, nothing seemed to be right. The trash can that was supposed to be emptied was sitting by the door, and the cash register was emptied. But there was not one soul inside the building aside from him. Officer upon officer began showing up and going over the scene, collecting evidence as they went. There was not much evidence to gather from within the KFC except for a piece of fingernail that had been torn off. Back in the early 80s, DNA testing wasn't a thing yet, but it didn't stop people from wanting the spotlight with statements of the fingernail having its own unique markers like a fingerprint does. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'll get into that later. The next day, 15 miles away, a field of bodies was discovered. The bodies of the victims were found by Texas Rangers and local police. They were identified as 19-year-old Monty Landers, 20-year-old Joey Johnson, 38-year-old Opie Ann Hughes, 20-year-old David Maxwell, and 37-year-old Mary Tyler. They were found lying face down and side by side with bullet holes in the back of their heads with the exception of the on-duty manager, Opie Hughes, who chose to run. Unfortunately, she was not fast enough, as she was also shot in the back of the head. In time, it was found that all five of them had been shot at least once, except for Joey Johnson, who was shot at least three times. That I don't understand. Like, if if you're gonna say at least twice for all of them, Mm -hmm. obviously it was more than twice. Right. But they don't give, like, actual counts for any of them. So... Out of all of them, they were shot two times except for one of them. At least twice for all of them except for the one who was shot at least three times. Right. Stupid, right? Okay. Uh, I mean, like I had said before in my story, this that, you know, we can only do so much with the evidence that we're given, but why is it at least twice? It's like, were right. they not? It could be, you know, you know, from all the stories we've heard from, oh, let's say cases actually from all the other true crime podcasts we've listened to it's like mm-hmm. it seems like police work you know in the 70s and 80s is really shoddy for the most part you know uh, yeah and yeah and so <laughs> it, it could be a way that they were documented you know official language used in documentation to be at least this amount or in, in documentation is what it is I mean, it could be just the lack of, not lack of information, but the lack of clear information is annoying. All right. But that could have changed over time to what it is now. Oh, yeah. Jurisdiction would play a massive part in determining who would investigate this case. As the KFC and the field that the victims were found in would differ in counties, meaning different departments for, you know police and investigation did you say how far of a distance is or have you not gotten that far yet i did it was 15 miles oh okay that's what i thought yep which is interesting because if i remember correctly the texas state rangers is equivalent to you know the state police so so they really could have gone anywhere right we don't know texas protocol for law enforcement though so and and back then too right neither department wanted to share the investigation however Both wanted to lay claim and have complete control over the investigation. As the squabble for which department would take the lead continued, the Texas Rangers would ultimately choose to put Captain G.W. Brooks in charge of the investigation. Early on in the investigation, the name Romeo Pinkerton and his cousin Darnell Hartsfield would come up. Flyers were printed and distributed to draw attention to these men, as well as to a man named Elton Winton to get them to come into the station and have a chat. Nothing ever came of Elton Winton, so his name disappeared from all radars. The cousins, Romeo and Darnell, were let go, 
as they both had pretty solid alibis. With the slim to none evidence found, save for the piece of fingernail, police were claiming that and convinced that this belonged to the perpetrator for years. They believed this. Right, and which is kind of bizarre because how can like one fingernail that could have been randomly discarded throughout business hours being like, oh, this belongs to our, our suspect. It's kind of bizarre. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I break my nails at work all the time. Right. It, it happens. Right, so. and then I, like, I get weird shape. Mine can become weird shape from picking up the metal castings that I deal with on a daily basis. So yeah. I'll like... I'll just tear that last edge off because it annoys the yeah. I mean, once, once I discover it, it annoys me. So I'm sure everyone else that's listening has, you know, it's probably like, yep, I've done that too. Yeah. What do you do when you have a bit of broken fingernail and need a suspect? What do you do? You just point random blame on someone? No. <laughs> you go looking for someone with broken nails, yeah, which true. is exactly what they did. So what are they going to do? Start, you know... Are they going to Cinderella this shit with this piece of fingernail and go to everybody in the area? Let me see your fingers. <laughs> Is this a perfect fit? So they found a man by the name of James Earl Mankins Jr. Why did they choose James? Let me guess. Cinderella effect? His, fi- his finger matched the nail? Well, some people assume that it was because of his father, who was a state representative. Some people believe that it is because James had numerous run-ins with the law, primarily for dealing drugs, on top of his dad being able to, you know, kind of shoo it away. The investigators wanted a suspect so badly, so much, that, that with damn near nothing to go on, they kept James on their radar. He would end up charged with all of the murders in 1995. Yeah, that long in between. This is what you said, 83, correct? 83, yeah. Yeah, 1995 when he was charged with all of the murders. However, once here, once the hearing started, the charges were dropped. Why? Because the fingernail didn't match the finger? Due to lack of evidence. Oh, yeah, there's no surprise there when their only quote-unquote evidence is a single fucking fingernail. <laughs> Go figure. Unfortunately for Mankins, all of the speculations would continue to be aimed at him even after DNA testing confirmed the fingernail did not belong to him. Oh, there's a shock. Yeah. With Mankins free, they were back to nothing. For 10 years, the case was cold until it warmed up again. In November of 2005, cousins Darnell Hartsfield. Darnell? You mean Darnell? I do. Okay, Darnell. For this, I was like, <laughs> that doesn't even look like how it's spelled. Okay. For 10 years, the case was cold until it warmed up again in November of 2005. Cousins Darnell Hartsfield and Romeo Pinkerton, remember those guys that were put on the flyers? Okay. Mm-hmm. They were found and arrested for the murders while. Both of them were incarcerated. But wait, they were cleared because they had confirmed alibis, right? Especially when one of the alibis was that one of the men was incarcerated at the time of the murders. Yeah. You can't really murder somebody outside of prison when you're in prison. Not not yourself anyways. No. Well, that report was wrong. He had been released two days prior to the murders, and the jail sucked at keeping records, clearly. Well, like I said, shoddy police work. Yes. Also... They had had their eyes on James Mankins as the guy that did it, even after being let go. Pinkerton was in jail for unrelated drug charges, while Hartsfield was serving a life sentence for aggravated perjury that was connected to the KFC case. I don't know, like, I know what perjury is, but what what is aggravated perjury? Now, I know you've listened to more true crime than I have since it's still fairly new to me. 
Um, what exactly is perjury? Okay, so when like when you go to court and you're under oath. Okay. If you're, you know, the one that's being questioned. Okay. You're under oath. You're not supposed to lie. Those that commit perjury take the oath and they lie. Right. So where's the, when you say aggressive or ag- aggravated? Okay. So yeah, I have no idea what aggravated perjury would be. Okay. No clue. I'm not sure what he did to receive that charge. I couldn't find anything out. But the cousins were charged with capital murder and were looking at being sentenced to death. In 2007, Pinkerton took a plea deal as he had a feeling it wouldn't end well for him if he didn't. The deal was that he would serve five concurrent life terms, meaning he would serve all five at the same time. Right. In 2008, Hartsfield got to stand trial. He was also found guilty of murder. And just as his cousin had, he would serve all five of his life sentences concurrently. During these trials, a bomb was dropped. The prosecution stated that one victim, Opie Hughes, was sexually assaulted. And the semen found on the scene had been DNA tested. The semen didn't match Pinkerton, Hartsfield, or even her husband. The clothing had laid in evidence for so long that the track of who brought in what evidence and who had come into contact with it was long gone. This led to people claiming that there was a third suspect. Prosecution held this bit of information from the families and hoped it would further strengthen their case against the cousins, as they said they did indeed have the right men that time. Significant errors such as this one I just talked about were made throughout this entire investigation, from the moment Mary Tyler's daughter and husband walked into that KFC and touched things looking for something that would possibly tell them where the workers had gone, all the way to the very end of the trial. With all of the errors and misinformation surrounding this case, I'm surprised it was solved at all. The murders went unsolved for decades until DNA linked the cousins to it in 2001. So that's pretty much the whole story, but I have more recent information on them. In 2014, one of the men convicted for the murders, Romeo Pinkerton, was up for a parole hearing, but was denied due to the history and nature of the offenses. He is up for parole again in May 2024. Pinkerton's cousin, Darnell Hartsfield, will have another parole hearing in January of 2023. In May of this year, 2022, a judge ordered that any mention of the indictment of James Menkins in the 1983 killings of the five KFC employees would be expunged from the records in both counties, from the State Department of Public Safety, the State Board of Pardons and Paroles, as well as the National and State Crimes Information Centers. And this is their first suspect that had nothing to do with this, correct? But they really, really wanted it to be this guy. Right. Yeah. Just because it was his father was? Yes. Okay. But that's that's pretty much it. It just short and no. not not a ton of information right. at all on this. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be like every case and topic that we cover doesn't have to be like, I guess, say super in depth like the San Ysidro yeah. mass shooting was. I mean it's been like for its time it was probably like one of the first crimes of its type or why police respond with the forces that they do now oh i'd imagine because they get in these unique situations and the like with all the you know public outcry from san Ysidro that happened and you know they still had their operating procedures that they had to follow with that yeah so one thing i will say like linking my story to yours Mm -hmm. i'm glad that mary tyler's daughter didn't walk in and see a scene that would have been seen right like in your mcdonald's case right because that 
that would have, I mean, losing her mom obviously ruined her. We know that. Right. Um, but, I mean, seeing seeing all of that monstrosity would just be life-changing and not in a good way. But that's that's the story of the KFC murders. Well, I've not heard of that one before. And same with the San Ysidro until, you know, seeing that piece of shit on a card for a game that we have. I don't know if next time we play that after reading, you know looking into the story more that it might be a redraw on that yeah sorry jeff but for me i might not be able to play that you know that quote-unquote character i guess you could say in the game now yeah although if you have not played killers the card game i we both highly recommend it it is an amazing yeah it was a tabletop game that we did not know we needed to have in our life until we found it at a now defunct convention unfortunately after digging around even though we had quite some fun with it. Yes, we did. So if you're interested in looking up this game, it's called Killers of the Card Game. So I don't know how else to put this. I guess might have enjoyed this episode, even though it was super dark this time around. So we would like to thank you for like coming back for episode two, or possibly you're now starting on episode two, and we hope you come back for our next one. We do have a Facebook group. Just search for Macabre Emporium on Facebook. We also do have an email, which is macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. And we have now also added a YouTube channel for you to listen to our podcast on. And search for Macabre Emporium Pod on YouTube. So, Sarah, I'm thinking it might be time to close up the Emporium for today. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. At 5.05 p.m., officers are given the authorization. Fuck you, spit.